0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network. And right at the start, I'd like to remind you of two new shows that I think you'll like. The first is 1001 Best of Jack London. Jack London was one of the most prolific adventure writers ever, and he wrote more than adventure. Right now, you can catch his story, Unparalleled Invasion a futuristic short story that predicts the U.S. and Europe going to war with China in the 1970s and using biological weapons to destroy China's population. London wrote the story in 1906, and it's fascinating, especially when you look at it in the light of current events. The second is a heads-up for you listeners who enjoy a good romance. Nationally known voice actor Elizabeth Klett has teamed with us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and is narrating Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice now at 1001 Greatest Love Stories, so don't miss it. And now, here is our collection of some incredible stories, most being sole survivor stories, that I think you will enjoy. This topic fits neatly into our Mysteries category and makes for some pretty interesting listening. The first story is that of Frank Finkel, the only survivor of General George Custer's last stand at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Custer's entire company was wiped out, but Finkel claimed he made it out, and the details he gave could only have been known to those who were there, details which became known in the years after. We did this story way back when, entitled it, Custer's Last Stand, The Last Man Standing, but I thought it was worthy of a short retelling here. Frank Finkel was an American who rose to prominence late in his life and after his death for his claims to being the only survivor of George Armstrong Custer's famed Last Stand at the Battle of Little Bighorn, June 25, 1876. Historians do disagree over whether Finkel's claim is accurate. Although he did provide several details that would only have been known by someone who was at the Little Bighorn, there are inconsistencies in his accounts of events, so historians say. During the Battle of the Little Bighorn, Finkel claims he was wounded early in the fighting, and his horse bolted from the battle. After being nursed back to health, he traveled to St. Louis, then settled in Columbia County, Washington. For the next forty years, he amassed a significant estate as a farmer in the town of Dayton, and came to be regarded as one of Dayton's pioneers. Sometime around 1920, he began telling companions that he survived the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and for the next several years, he recounted his alleged experiences in the battle. Historians who support Finkel's claim argued that several details in his account could only be known by someone who was actually there, including details of events in the battle that were not widely known until after Finkel's death and the location and quantity of streams of potable water in the area. Those who disagree with Finkel's claim argue that records at the time do not indicate the existence of Frank Finkel, and that the United States Army knows the fate of all the people who have been suggested as possible false names for Finkel. Accounts of Frank Finkel's enlistment in the United States Army vary. John Custer, author of the book *Custer Survivor, and a supporter of the Finkel claim, argues that he enlisted under the name August Finkel in Chicago in January of 1872. August Finkel's reported place of birth was Berlin, Prussia, which Custer argues was Finkel's attempt to use his actual German heritage to capitalize on the Prussian military's popularity in the United States at that time. Custer also uncovered a document revealing that Finkel's widow believed he enlisted in September of 1874 in Iowa under the alias Frank Hall. At the time of the Battle of the Little Bighorn, he was 2nd Sergeant of C Company of the 7th Cavalry under the command of Tom Custer. Finkel claimed that, Early in the battle, both he and his horse were shot, and the horse bolted from the battle site with Finkel still riding. His spooked horse passed to an Indian camp full of squaws and children before reaching open ground. After riding for several days, Finkel left his already dying horse and continued on foot. He came upon a white man cutting wood outside his cabin. The man initially demanded Finkel leave at gunpoint, but, when he fell unconscious in front of him, he took him into his cabin. The man, known to Finkel only as Bill, helped to treat his wounds. Finkel remained with him for several months, then departed for Fort Benton, where he learned of the deaths of Custer and all of his men. He claims that he reported to an army officer to request a discharge, but gave up on the matter when the officer required him to provide two witnesses to vouch for his identity. He kept quiet about his situation for years because he didn't want to be branded as a coward and a deserter. Finkel traveled to St. Louis, Missouri, where he worked in the dairy industry. He returned west in 1878 and settled in Dayton, Washington. He married his first wife, Delia Rainwater, in 1886, and soon after their marriage, Finkel began acquiring farmland, and by 1911, he owned a significant amount of real estate in Dayton. Frank and Delia had three children who survived to adulthood, including one, Ben, who served in the Idaho Legislature. A 1906 newspaper article characterized Frank Finkel as someone who enjoys the respect and confidence of all the good people in the community. Finkel is not believed to have said anything about the Battle of the Little Bighorn over the course of 40 years living in Dayton. He is believed to have first made his claim of surviving the battle in 1920 after hearing his companions discussing what he believed to be erroneous details about Custer and the battle. Over the next several years, he expanded on his claims in local speaking engagements and in 1921 gave an account to a reporter from the Walla Walla Bulletin, the largest newspaper in the area at that time. Delia died in August of 1921, shortly after the Walla Walla Bulletin article was published, and in 1926, Frank married his second wife, Hermie. Frank died at age 76 on August 28, 1930. In 2013, A photograph described as August Finkel was published first in the Battlefield Dispatch, a membership circulation publication for Custer Enthusiasts, and then in the December 2013 issue of Wild West, a professionally edited general circulation magazine of the wider history group. The photograph, described as Sergeant August Finkel of the 7th Cavalry in an 1874 cavalry blouse, was widely identified as a photograph of Frank Finkel of Ohio, taken 10 years before the familiar Frank Finkel portrait photograph taken around 1886. The hair color and hairline differed due to age, but every facial feature was identical, as were several mannerisms, including the shirt collar flipped up on the right side inside the coat collar, according to Mike Roncello, a portrait photographer with New Jersey press credentials. Sylvia Groen, a portrait painter, Police Chief Benjamin Fox of Wyckoff, New Jersey, and Jacques Harlow, a professional engineer with a degree from Dartmouth and a Fulbright Scholar with I.D. training from NYU. All agreed the two pictures were the same person, pretty well proving that Frank Finkel was a U.S. Cavalryman. The owner of the photograph was a friend and fellow soldier, Frank Finkel, and mentions burying Frank in the same dispatch article. Four men claimed to identify Finkel and his horse, both found dead on the field of battle. They do not name parts of battlefields for missing soldiers but matching the 1886 photo with the 1874 cavalry photo seems to indicate that he did survive the 1876 battle. Conversely, Finkel's best friend, Charles Windolph rode down from Reno Hill expressly to find Finkel's body after the battle and give him a decent burial, but he couldn't find the body. I tried to find the body of my German friend, Trooper Finkel, the tallest man in the regiment, but I could not identify him. Windolph, a Medal of Honor recipient and the last living soldier survivor of the battle, said, and when I say last survivor, keep in mind that Reno's men were not involved in Custer's fight. They had their own fight on a mountaintop not too far away. He said this in his book, I Fought with Custer. windolph's daughter told Dr. Arthur Kennenberg, after the battle, Daddy says he looked everywhere for him, and he was like a brother to him, but the bodies were so disfigured that he was unable to find him. None of the people who claimed to have buried Finkel ever gave a detailed description of how they might have recognized his body. The final report of the primary source, Sergeant Daniel Kniep, was described as full of inaccuracies by Colonel W.A. Graham in the Custer Myth. Kniep also described 60, 70, or 75 dead Indians when the Indians reported losing only 26 warriors and listed them by name. Kniep said General Custer was shot once when every other witness said Custer was shot twice. Kniep failed to identify his own company commander, Tom Custer, who had been beaten to a pulp. Kniep apparently identified the body of the man he believed to be Finkel for Lieutenant Edward Godfrey, who did not appear to know Finkel by sight. Sergeant Samuel Alcott was not present at the actual battle and describes the burial he attended as taking place on a barren plain when it was actually on a hillside. All taken together, the picture looks very much as though there were one lone survivor of Custer's last stand. Next up, the story of Vesna Voljevic, a flight attendant and sole survivor of the 1972 crash of JAT Flight 367. Voljevic holds the Guinness World Record for surviving the longest fall, 33,000 feet, over six miles, without a parachute. And here's her story. JAT Yugoslav Airlines Flight 367 was a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 aircraft which exploded shortly after overflying NDB Hermsdorf near Sebnitz, East Germany, while en route from Stockholm to Belgrade on January 26, 1972. The aircraft, piloted by Captain Ludvig Rasdry and First Officer Ratko Mihik, broke into three pieces and spun out of control, crashing near the village of Srpska Kamenice in Czechoslovakia, now, as you all know, the Czech Republic. Of the 28 on board, 27 were killed upon ground impact and one Yugoslav crew member, 22-year-old flight attendant Vesna Voljavik, survived. Voljevic and her colleagues boarded at Copenhagen at 1.30 p.m. that day. Voljavik would later tell a journalist, As it was late, we were in the terminal and I saw it park. I saw all the passengers and crew plane. One man seemed terribly annoyed. It was not only me that noticed him either. Other crew members saw him, as did the station manager in Copenhagen. I think it was the man, who, I think it was the man who put the bomb in the baggage. I think he had checked in a bag in Stockholm, got off in Poc- got off in Copenhagen and never reboarded the flight. Flight 367 departed from Copenhagen Airport at 3:15 p.m. at one p.m. An explosion tore through the DC-9's baggage compartment. When explosives detonated in the plane's luggage compartment, the plane broke apart midair above Czechoslovakia. The other passengers were most likely sucked outside, but Voljevic stayed in the fuselage, wedged in by a food cart, as it fell fell onto the ground. The trees and snow probably helped cushion its fall, and against all odds, Voljevic survived, the only one of the 28 passengers and crew to do so. Her injuries included broken legs and vertebrae, a fractured skull, and temporary paralysis. She was also comatose for part of her recovery. Some reports state Voljevic was at the rear of the aircraft when the explosion occurred, but she has stated that she was told that she was found in the middle section of the plane. She was discovered by villager Bruno Honk, who heard her screaming amid the wreckage. Her turquoise uniform was covered in blood, and her three-inch stiletto heels had been torn off by the force of the impact. Honk had been a medic during World War II and was able to keep Bolivik alive until rescuers arrived. Bolivik was in a coma for 27 days and was temporarily paralyzed from the waist down, but survived. She continued working for J.A.T., holding a desk job afterwards. She was able to walk again less than a year after the crash. She had no memory of the flight after boarding. Her first memory was seeing her parents in the hospital. Remarkably, she continued flying and even tried to get her old job back as a flight attendant, though the airline declined on the basis of her health. Bolivic speculated they just didn't want so much publicity about the accident. She also disagreed when people referred to her as lucky, pointing out that if that were true, she never would have had this accident. Bolivik died in 2016 at the age of 66. Between 1962 and 1982, ultranationalist groups carried out 128 terror attacks against Yugoslavian civilian and military targets. The Yugoslav authorities suspected that emigrant Croatian terrorists, the Ustash, were to blame for bringing down Flight 367. And the story gets interesting from here. The officially stated cause of the Flight 367 crash was challenged occasionally over the years by conspiracy theories. For example, in 1997, the Czech periodical Letekvi a Kosmonika reported that the plane was shot down by mistake by Czechoslovak air defenses. The discussion about different aspects of the crash was reopened on January 8, 2009, when German news magazine Tagesschau featured a report by investigative journalist Peter Horning and Pavel Theiner, allegedly based on newly obtained documents mainly from the Czech Civil Aviation Authority. They concluded that it was extremely likely that the plane had been mistakenly shot down only a few hundred meters above the ground by a MiG fighter from the Czechoslovak Air Force, having been mistaken for an enemy aircraft while attempting a forced landing. All the evidence suggesting that the plane was destroyed at high altitude by explosives placed in a suitcase would be therefore suspected forged by Czechoslovak secret police. As evidence that the DC-9 had broken up at a lower altitude, the journalist cited eyewitnesses from Sreborska Kamenice, who had seen the plane burning but still intact below the low-hanging clouds, and confirmation of a Serbian aviation expert, who had been present at the crash site, that the debris area had been much too small for a crash from high altitude. It also referred to sightings of a second plane. According to Horning, Flight 367 got into difficulties went into a steep descent and found itself over a sensitive military area close to a nuclear weapons facility. However, Horning himself stated that for his theory there are only indications and no evidence. Miss Vuljevic, who had no memory of the crash or the flight after boarding, referred to the claims that the plane attempted a forced landing or descended to such a low altitude as nebulous nonsense. A representative of Guinness World Records according to a German paper, stated that it seems that at the time Guinness was duped by this swindle just like the rest of the media. But Guinness, upon further study, stuck with their claim. 33,000 feet, a six-mile-plus fall. It's possible if the section she was in spiraled down, then hit treetops, breaking its landing. But wow, I can see how that fall created a storm of controversy. We did a story a few years ago, coming up next, on a young girl, her name now Julie Diller, who survived a one-mile drop in Peru. That's coming up next, and it's a fascinating story. She not only survived the fall, she survived days, injured and with no supplies, surviving in the jungle until she was able to reach the first humans. The Civilian Aviation Authority dismissed the conspiracy theory as media speculation. Its spokeswoman added that authority experts would not comment on them, and that findings of the official investigation are being questioned mostly because of the media attractiveness of the story. A Czech magazine quoted a Czech Army expert, saying, In case of violation of the airspace, the incident would not be solved by anti-air missiles, but by fighter planes. Also, it would not be possible to conceal such an incident, as there would be approximately 150 to 200 people knowing about the incident they would not have any reason to not tell about that incident today. A potential missile launch would be audible and especially visible for thousands of people long afterwards. He further claims that for the Yugoslav plane, it was technically impossible to dive in a state of emergency from the proven flight level to the low altitude and place where it was allegedly shot down. He also states that the debris area wasn't too small, and that the main parts were more than 1.5 kilometers apart. Additionally, the Czechoslovak air defense soldier who operated the radar on the day of the crash stated in a 2009 interview that any Czechoslovak jet fighters would be noticed by West German air defense. But here's the crux of the matter. The main evidence against such a theory is the flight data obtained from the black box, which provided the exact data about the time, speed, direction, acceleration, and altitude of the plane at the moment of the explosion. Both black boxes were opened and analyzed by their respective service companies in Amsterdam in the presence of experts from Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and the Netherlands. Voljevic's fall was the subject of a Mythbusters episode which concluded it was possible to survive the fall depending on how the wreckage someone was sitting in landed. As mentioned, Miss Vujovic holds the official record in the Guinness Book of Records for the highest fall survived without a parachute. Voljevic received the Guinness Prize from Paul McCartney. A major celebrity in Yugoslavia, Voljevic was a frequent guest on national television shows up until the 1990s. She attended annual commemorations at the crash site until they were stopped in 2002. The daughter of the firefighter that saved her bears her name, as well as a local hotel, called Pension Vesna in the Czech Republic near the site of the crash. We'll return with more Sole Survivors right after these sponsor messages. Julianne Kepke, today Dr. Julianne Diller, was only 17 when she fell almost two miles into the rainforest following the breakup of the airplane she was traveling in with her mother on Christmas Eve, 1971. She was the sole survivor. Kepki was born in Lima, October 10, 1954. Her parents were working at Lima's Museum of Natural History when she was born. At the age of 14, she left Lima with her parents to establish the Panguana Research Station in the Amazon rainforest, where she learned survival skills. On December 24, 1971, just one day after she graduated, Kepke flew on Lanza Flight 508. Her mother Maria had wanted to return to Panguana with Kepke. On the 20th of December, but Kepke wished to attend her graduation ceremony in Lima on December 23rd. So Maria agreed for Kepke to stay longer, and instead they scheduled a flight for Christmas Eve. All flights were booked aside from one with Lanza. Kepke's father, Hans Wilhelm, urged his wife to avoid flying with the airline due to its poor reputation. Nonetheless, the flight was booked. The plane was struck by lightning mid flight and began to disintegrate before plummeting to the ground. After their plane was struck on its wing by lightning, Dilla recalled that her mother calmly remarked, Now it's all over. Kepke found herself still strapped to her seat, falling ten thousand feet into the Amazon rainforest. Kepke survived the fall, but suffered injuries such as broken collarbone, a deep cut in her right arm, an eye injury, and a concussion. She then spent an incredible eleven days in the rainforest, in very casual clothes, missing one shoe, with no water and no supplies. Most of those eleven days were spent making her way through the water. While in the jungle, she dealt with severe insect bites and the infestation of maggots in her wounded arm. After nine days, she was able to find an encampment that had been set up by local fishermen. She gave herself rudimentary first aid— which included pouring gasoline on her arm to force the maggots out of the wound. A few days later, the returning fisherman found her, gave her proper first aid, and used a canoe to transport her to a more inhabited area. She was soon airlifted to a hospital. Julianne's unlikely survival has been the subject of much speculation. Experts have said that she survived the fall because she was harnessed into her seat, which was in the middle of her row, and the two seats on either side of her which remained attached to her seat as part of a row of three, are thought to have functioned as a parachute, which slowed her fall. The impact may also have been lessened by the upcraft from a thunderstorm Kepke fell through, as well as the thick foliage at her landing site. As many as fourteen other passengers were later discovered to have survived the initial crash, but died while waiting to be rescued. In her autobiography, she describes coming across her mother, dead, still in her seat. After recovering from her injuries, Kepke assisted search parties in locating the crash site and recovering the bodies of victims. Her mother's body was discovered on January 12, 1972. Kepke returned to her parents' native Germany, where she fully recovered from her injuries. Like her parents, she studied biology at the University of Kiel and graduated in 1980. She received a doctorate from Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, and returned to Peru to conduct research in mammalogy, specializing in bats. In 2000, following the death of her father, she took over as the director of Panguana. She currently serves as a librarian at the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich. In 2010, she wrote in her book, When I fell from the sky, I had nightmares for a long time, for years, and of course the grief about my mother's death and that of the other people came back again and again. The thought, why was I the only survivor, haunts me. And it always will. Her book was released in 2011. Kepke's story was faithfully told by Kepke herself in German filmmaker Werner Herzog's documentary Wings of Hope, 1998. I've seen it, and it is great. Herzog was interested in telling her story because of a personal connection. He was scheduled to be on the same flight while scouting locations for his film gear, The Wrath of God, but a last-minute change of plan spared him from the crash. He had planned to make the film ever since narrowly missing the flight, but was unable to contact Kepke for decades since she avoided the media. He located her after contacting the priest who performed her mother's funeral. Kepke accompanied him on a trip to the crash site, which she described as a kind of therapy for her. And now our fourth story, the story of Salvador Alvarenga, a 36-year-old fisherman who survived 14 months lost at sea and washed ashore nearly 7,000 miles from where he had originally set sail. His story? In 2012, Alvaranga and his 22-year-old companion, Ezequiel Cordoba, got caught in a severe storm while attempting to head back to the coast of Mexico after a fishing trip. Their boat was 25 feet long and virtually invisible at sea, as he later described it. Alvarenga's last words to shore before going missing were, "'Come now, I'm really getting effed out here.' The engine had just failed, and the waves were pushing them further and further into the open water. The pair caught fish and seabirds by hand, sometimes drying the meat and sometimes consuming it raw, and they worked out a system to collect rainwater. However, two months into their ordeal, Cordoba sunk into a depression, stopped accepting food and water, and died soon afterward. Alvarenga was devastated to lose his only company, and he spoke to Cordoba's corpse as if he were still alive for six days before burying him at sea. Alvarenga staved off despair with his vivid imagination, and after four hundred and thirty-eight days at sea, he spotted land and landed on Iban Atoll, where Emmy Lebagmedo and Russell Lachidrick discovered him staring at their vacation house. They struggled to communicate with Alvarenga trying to draw his situation using stick figures. Help was summoned, and after 11 days of hospitalization, he was cleared to return home to El Salvador after spending 14 months adrift in a fishing boat in the Pacific Ocean, beginning on November 17, 2012, and ending on January 30, 2014. Our fifth story... Most of you have probably heard of or seen the 2010 movie, 127 Hours. It's about a man named Aaron Ralston, whose arm was pinned by a boulder while he was exploring in a remote Utah canyon. When the boulder crushed his right arm and trapped him, he had only one liter of water, two burritos, and a few chunks of chocolate, along with headphones and a video camera. There was no hope of anyone finding him, since he told no one where he was going, and the area was extremely remote. It was such a bleak situation that 27-year-old Ralston used the camera to record his last will and testament. He's since shown the footage to his parents, but he said he'll never release it to the public. After failing to move or chip away at the boulder, Ralston was facing starvation and eventual death if he didn't do something drastic. Ralston had no choice but to amputate his own arm with a blunt knife from what he described as his cheap multi-tool kit. On the sixth day, he completed his gruesome plan, made an improvised tourniquet, and rappelled sixty-five feet down to escape. He was later found by Dutch tourists and then picked up by a search-and-rescue helicopter. Ralston continued to be an avid outdoorsman, and in 2010, his then-wife gave birth to a baby boy, fulfilling a vision Ralston had had while trapped, a vision of his young son asking him to play final note, he really liked the movie 127 Hours. He called it the best film ever made. Afghanistan has been at war for centuries. I know that you British and Australian listeners can vouch for your country's involvement as well as the U.S. and Russia. This incident happened during the first Anglo-Afghan war, and it's a fascinating account of one man's survival. It also inspired a famous painting, which we'll get to at the end. He's our sixth sole survivor, and his name was William Bryden. He was a British doctor who was assistant surgeon in the British East India Company Army during the First Anglo Afghan War, famous for reportedly being the only member of an army of 4,500 men, plus 12,000 accompanying civilians, to reach safety in Jalalabad at the end of the long retreat from Kabul. Bryden was born in London of Scottish descent. He studied medicine at the University College London and at the University of Edinburgh. He subsequently was appointed as a surgeon in the Bengal Army of the British East India Company. In 1841, William Bryden was posted to Afghanistan as the assistant surgeon of Shah Shuja's Contingent, a British officer infantry force recruited in India to provide protection for the British-backed ruler in Kabul. This mercenary unit formed part of a combined British and Indian army which occupied the city in August of 1839. In January 1842, following the killing of the two British representatives there, it was decided to withdraw the British force in Kabul. The nearest British garrison was in Jalalabad, 90 miles away, and the army would need to go through mountain passes with the January snow hindering them. Under the command of Major General William George Keith Elphinstone, 4,500 British and Indian soldiers, plus 12,000 civilian camp followers, including wives and children, set out for Jalalabad, January 6, 1842, with the understanding that they had been offered safe passage. Afghan tribesmen intercepted them and proceeded to attack them during the next seven days. Bryden recorded in his diary that as early as the first night of the retreat, Many of his sepoys, who were Indian soldiers, were crippled by frostbite and had to be abandoned in the snow. By the fourth day of the retreat, Bryden's regiment had virtually ceased to exist, though he himself was fortunate enough to have found some food abandoned by Lady McNaughton, the wife of the British envoy murdered in Kabul. The final stand took place at Gandamak on the morning of January 13, 1842, in the snow, Twenty officers and forty-five British soldiers, mostly of the forty-fourth foot, found themselves surrounded on a hillock. The Afghans attempted to persuade the soldiers that they intended them no harm. Then the sniping began, followed by a series of rushes. Things were so desperate that Captain Soda wrapped the regimental colors around his body and was dragged into captivity with a sergeant named Fair and seven privates. The remainder were shot or cut down. Surgeon Bryden was one of twelve mounted officers who had become separated from the remnants of the main column before the final stand at Gandamak. This small group had ridden to Fudabad, but half had been killed there while six escaped. All but Bryden were killed, one by one, further along the road, as the horses became exhausted. Both Bryden and his pony were wounded in the course of encounters with small Afghan parties. On the afternoon of January 13, 1842, the British troops in Jalalabad, watching for their comrades of the Kabul garrison, saw a single figure ride up to the town walls. It was Bryden. Part of his skull had been sheared off by an Afghan sword, and he survived the blow only because he'd stuffed a copy of Blackwood's magazine into his hat to fight the intense cold weather. The magazine took most of the blow, saving the doctor's life, this scene of Bryden, head hanging low, nearly dead, walking his injured horse into Jalalabad, inspired a famous painting by the Victorian artist Lady Butler, who portrayed Bryden approaching the gates of the Jalalabad Fort perched on his exhausted horse, which, according to Bryden, collapsed and died when put in a stable after arrival in the city. The painting is titled Remnants of an Army. Bryden became widely, if inaccurately, known as being the only survivor of the entire army. But there's more to the story. In fact, he was not the only European to survive the retreat. About 115 British officers, soldiers, wives, and children were captured or taken as hostages and survived to be subsequently released. Included was the wife of Sir Robert Henry Sale, Lady Sale, though not Elphinstone, who had died in captivity. Nor was Bryden the only European to survive the trek from Kabul to Jalalabad without spending time in captivity. By Bryden's own account, a Greek merchant, a Mr. Banis, also made it to Jalalabad, arriving two days after Bryden, but surviving for only one day. In addition, a small number of Indian sepoys reached Jalalabad on foot over the subsequent weeks. One sepoy, Havildar Sita Ram, escaped from Afghanistan after 21 months of slavery, and rejoined his former regiment at Delhi. About 2,000 sepoys and an unrecorded number of camp followers were eventually found in Kabul and brought back to India by Pollock's Army of Retribution following their occupation of the city. Upon recovering from his wound, Bryden resumed his duties as a regimental surgeon with the Army of Retribution under Pollock, which briefly reoccupied Kabul in September of 1842. He narrowly escaped death from an enemy shell during this campaign. Bryden later fought in the Second Anglo Burmese War of 1852 when Rangoon was taken. At the time of the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857, Bryden was still serving as a surgeon of the Bengal Army. Stationed in Lucknow along with his wife and children, Bryden survived his second siege, that of the Lucknow Residency, which occurred June through November of 1857, in which he was badly wounded in the thigh. He was appointed a Companion of the Order of the Bath in November of 1858. His wife, Colina Maxwell Bryden, published a memoir of the Siege of the Lucknow Residency. Bryden died at his home, Westfield, near Nigg, in Rothshire, on March 20, 1873, and he's buried in Rosemarkey Churchyard alongside his brother-in-law, Donald McIntyre, V.C. Our seventh sole survivor is Bahia Bakari, Another lone survivor of an airplane crash. She was traveling with her mother to visit family when their plane, Yemenia Flight 626, crash-landed in the Indian Ocean, killing everyone on board but her. She was 13 years old at the time of the 2009 accident. She held on to debris from the wreck for over nine hours, unable to see and facing choppy water doing its best to tear her away. When she was discovered by a rescue party, she was too exhausted to swim to their boat, "'so a sailor named Labuna Salamani Matrafi swam out to meet her. "'She was treated in a French hospital for a broken collarbone, "'hypothermia, and bruising. "'In 2010, Bakari released a memoir entitled "'Moi Bahia, La Miracule." "'In it, she wrote that at first she thought she'd fallen through the plane's window "'after pressing her forehead against it to look outside. "'Steven Spielberg reportedly wanted to adapt the book, But Bakari turned him down because, she said, it would be too terrifying. Nobody could act out the pain I felt in those moments. And looking back at the fact that she hung on for nine hours with a broken collarbone in waves is absolutely amazing. It showed an incredible will to survive. Our eighth survivor is Peter Seibold, who, in 2014, somehow survived the disintegration of the Virgin Galactic Spaceship Two "'at a subsequent fall of more than 50,000 feet. "'Keep in mind oxygen runs out at 15,000 feet. "'His co-pilot, Michael Alsberry, perished in the accident. "'For comparison, a commercial flight's cruising altitude "'is usually somewhere in the ballpark of 35,000 feet, not 50. "'Sybold described hearing a loud noise "'and then paper fluttering in the wind, as he put it, "'as the cabin fell apart around him. "'Then he started falling.' and he faded in and out of consciousness as he plummeted toward the desert below. His recollection of most of the fall is spotty, but he does remember attempting to fix his oxygen supply and preparing his parachute, which deployed at some point between ten and 20,000 feet. The subsequent slower rate of descent gave Seibold more time to get a grasp on his surroundings, and he was conscious and aware he was injured by the time he landed in a bush. Sybold's injuries included a broken arm, and fractured collarbone, scratched corneas, and multiple bruises and scratches, and a survival was considered a miracle. The National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, concluded that the breakup of the spacecraft was caused by a combination of pilot error and the pair being pressured to carry out commands in a matter of seconds while rocketing into space. Our ninth sole survivor is Lieutenant Colonel Vivian Statham, who was an Australian Army nurse during the Second World War. She was the sole surviving nurse of the Banka Island Massacre when the Japanese killed 21 of her fellow nurses on Raji Beach, Banka Island, in the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia, on February 16, 1942. She was born with the unusual name of Vivian Bullwinkle, and to be honest with you, I had no idea that that name even existed outside of a cartoon moose but Bullwinkle it was. She trained as a nurse and midwife at Broken Hill, New South Wales, and began her nursing career in Hamilton, Victoria, before moving to the Jesse McPherson Hospital in Melbourne. In 1941, she wanted to enlist for service in the Second World War. She volunteered as a nurse with the Royal Australian Air Force, but was rejected for having flat feet. She was, however, able to join the Australian Army Nursing Service, assigned to the 213th Australian General Hospital in September of 1941, at which time she sailed for Singapore. After a few weeks with the 210th AGH, Vivian rejoined the 13th AGH in Johar, Beirut. Japanese troops invaded Malaya in December of 1941 and began to advance southwards, winning a series of victories. By late January of 1942, they were advancing through Johor, and the 13th AGH was to evacuate to Singapore. A short-lived defense of the island ended in defeat, and, on February 12th, she and 65 other nurses boarded the SS Viner Brook, trying to escape, but two days later, the ship was sunk by Japanese aircraft. She and 21 other nurses and a large group of men, women, and children made it ashore at Raji Beach on Banka Island. Others on board either went down with the ship or were swept away and never seen again. The group were joined the next day by others, making a total of about a hundred, including about twenty English soldiers from another ship sunk earlier. They elected to surrender to the Japanese, not yet knowing of the atrocities the Japanese were capable of. An officer from the Viner Brook walked to Montauk, a town on the northwest of the island, to contact the Japanese. While he was away... Matron Irene Drummond, the most senior of the Australian nurses, suggested that civilian women and children should start off walking towards Muntok. In an action that later became known as the Banka Island Massacre, Japanese soldiers came and killed the unarmed men, raped all the women, and then motioned the nurses to wade into the sea naked. They then machine-gunned the nurses from behind. Vivian was struck by a bullet which passed completely through her body, missing her internal organs— and feigned death until the Japanese soldiers left. She hid with British Army Private Cecil George Kingsley of the Royal Army Ordnance Corps for twelve days, tending to his severe wounds, only then realizing the extent of her own wound before being captured. They were taken into captivity, but Kingsley died soon after from his injuries, which included a gunshot wound in his abdomen. Recent evidence collected by historian Lynette Silver, broadcaster Tess Lawrence, and biographer Barbara Angel, indicates that Vivian and most of the nurses were sexually assaulted before they were murdered. Sadly, Vivian was gagged or told to shut up by the Australian government from speaking about the rapes at the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal in 1946. The truth was said to be too awful to speak. Vivian was reunited with survivors of the Viner Brook. She told them of the massacre, but none spoke of it again until after the war, lest it put her, as witness to the massacre, in danger. She spent three and a half years in captivity, together with Betty Jeffrey, Wilma Oram, and Margaret Dryberg. Dryberg, the eldest, died in captivity around the age of 55. Another surviving nurse was Pat Darling, who died in 2007. Japanese atrocities committed upon men and women before and during World War II far exceeded those of any other nation. 900 Japanese soldiers were hung for war crimes, and thousands more would spend time in prison. Our tenth sole survivor, Ben S. Cawley Jr., was an American trumpet player, vocalist, songwriter, and founded member of the Stax recording group, the Bar Kays. Record collectors might remember the Stax label, which featured groups like Booker T. and the M.G.s. And one of their songs, by the way, Green Onions, was used for years as the, intro for the, as the intro for the Rush Limbaugh radio show. Isaac Hayes was also on the Stax label, as well as Otis Redding, Sam and & Dave, and a host of others. Ben Cawley was the only survivor of the 1967 plane crash that claimed the lives of soul singer Otis Redding and four members of the Bar Kays. Ben Cauley was born in South Memphis, Tennessee. He learned to play trumpet when at school and formed a band with guitarist Jimmy King, saxophonist Phaeton Jones, drummer Carl Cunningham, keyboardist Ronnie Caldwell, and bassist James Alexander. The group was originally named the Imperials and later changed to the Bar Kays in the mid-1960s. Colley started attending Le Moyne College in 1965 before becoming a professional musician. The Bar Kays joined the Stax Studio by 1966 and were signed on to Stax's subsidiary, Volt Records, in the beginning of 1967. According to James Alexander, Cawley was the best dressed of the group, always known to wear a suit, no matter the occasion. Al Jackson Jr., the drummer with Booker T. and the MGs, took a particular interest in the young members of the Bar Ks and groomed them to become the second house band for Stax after Booker T. and the MGs. As such, they appeared as the backing band on numerous recordings for Stax artists such as Otis Redding, Carla Thomas, and Sam and Dave. In fact, Otis Redding took such a liking to the band that he chose them to be his touring backup band in the summer of 1967. On December 8, 1967, Otis Redding and the Barquets flew in Redding's twin-engine Beechcraft H-18 plane to Nashville, Tennessee, for three weekend gigs. The following day, December 9, they took the Beechcraft to Cleveland, where they appeared on Don Webster's upbeat TV show with Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Later that same evening, they played at a popular Cleveland club, Leo's Casino. On December 10th, on their commute to Madison, Wisconsin, at 3.28 in the afternoon, the plane, carrying Otis Redding, his partner, and the majority of the bar crashed into the Weecoac Bay, formerly Squaw Bay area of Lake Monona, on the outskirts of Madison. bar bassist, James Alexander, had taken a different flight, as there was not enough room left on Redding's plane. Lucky for him. Cawley, who was sitting directly behind Otis Redding in the co pilot seat, had fallen asleep on the flight clutching a seat cushion. He awoke when he realized that he couldn't breathe. He said that he then saw bandmate Phelan Jones look out of a window and say, "'Oh, no.' Cawley then unbuckled his safety belt, which ultimately allowed him to separate himself from the wreckage. Other victims, including Redding, were found still attached to their seats." According to Jet Magazine, which interviewed Colley and the authorities who assisted in the rescue attempt, the rescue divers could not be in the water for more than 15 minutes at a time due to the freezing temperature of the water. Madison Police Inspector John Harrington was quoted as saying that a person without insulated scuba gear wouldn't live longer than 20 or so minutes in that icy water. After the crash, Ben Colley and James Alexander reformed the bar case and went on to record with Stacks artists such as Isaac Hayes, Rufus Thomas, and the Staple Singers, as well as appear at Watt Stacks, the Black Woodstock. However, the band made little money, as they did not have much work outside of being a house band for Stacks, and frequently needed to tour with the artists they backed. Cauley had two young daughters to support, so he left the group in 1971, allowing him to continue performing on his own while being able to remain home with his family. Cawley suffered a debilitating stroke in 1989, but eventually recovered fully, aside from occasional problems with slightly slurred speech. Into the 2000s, Cawley could be heard backing up Liz Lottman, jazz and blues singer, or performing live at the Memphis club Rum Boogie, located downtown on Beale Street. He also directed the choir of Calvary Longview United Methodist Church, attended by him and his wife Shirley. On September 9, 2008, Attorney B.J. Wade donated $100,000 to Stax Records that would be used to create the Ben Cauley Scholarship. In his honor and to shed light on his accomplishments, on September 12, 2008, the scholarship was founded. On June 6, 2015, Cauley was on hand to be inducted into the official Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame in Clarksdale, Mississippi, along with the other barques. Our eleventh sole survivor is Alexander Selkirk, the maroon privateer and inspiration for Robinson Crusoe, who spent four years and four months alone on a deserted island after he tried and failed to lead a mutiny against the ship's captain he disliked. The story goes this way. In 1704, the short-tempered Selkirk told the 21-year-old captain of the Sink ports, Thomas Stradling, that he would rather be left to fend for himself on an uninhabited island and risk another long journey in the worm-eaten, disease-ridden ship. Stradling didn't argue, and Selkirk was left behind, with bedding, a musket, pistol, gunpowder, hatchet, knife, his navigation tools, a pot for boiling food, two pounds of tobacco, some cheese and jam, a flask of rum, and his Bible. Apparently, he immediately realized the gravity of his decision, when no one joined him, and he waded back toward the ship to beg for forgiveness but Stradling wanted to make an example of him, so he left him behind. Having a short temper and not taking the time to think things through can definitely be a problem for people. Selkirk passed the time by domesticating cats to keep the island's rat population at bay, singing prayers and hymns, and hiding from the occasional Spanish ship, since Spain was infamous for its brutality toward prisoners. After spending years watching a horizon for the sight of a friendly ship, Selkirk was finally rescued in 1709. At first, it was difficult for the sailors to understand his story, since he'd had so little cause to speak over the past few years. But they got the gist, and Selkirk came aboard and spent two years working as a privateer before returning to London in 1711. Daniel Defoe heard Selkirk's story and published Robinson Crusoe when the ex-Castaway was 43. Also, for the record, the ship that abandoned Selkirk... Sank, and it happened right after it abandoned Selkirk. That must rank as the top five I told you so of all time. Our last sole survivor is probably the most famous. His name is Marcus Luttrell. Marcus Luttrell is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL who received the Navy Cross and Purple Heart for his actions in June 2005 against Taliban fighters during Operation Red Wings, in which he was the lone survivor. Luttrell became an SO-1 staff officer by the end of his eight-year career in the United States Navy. He currently co-hosts After Action, a TV show in which former special operations veterans talk about issues in the United States. Glenn Beck is the executive producer of the show, which airs on The Blaze. Luttrell was born in Houston, Texas, on November 7, 1975. He began training for the U.S. Navy SEALs at the age of 14 with U.S. Army veteran Billy Shelton, who lived near Luttrell's home. Luttrell trained every day with his twin brother Morgan and others who aspired to join the U.S. Navy and other special operations forces. Shelton trained them using various weight and endurance exercises. After high school at Willis High School in Willis, Texas, Luttrell attended Sam Houston State University, where he was a member of the Epsilon Zeta chapter of Delta Tau Delta fraternity. In 1998, he graduated with B.S. in International Business. He enlisted in the U.S. Navy March of 1999. After graduating from boot camp and hospital corpsman A. School, he transferred to Basic Underwater Demolition, SEAL, BUDS, Class 226. But due to a fractured femur he suffered from falling off a rope, he graduated with Class 228 April 21, 2000. After completing BUDS, Luttrell attended Army Jump School and SEAL qualification training. Luttrell earned his Navy Enlisted Classification 5326 Combatant Swimmer SEAL and Naval Special Warfare Insignia on February 2, 2001. He was then sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, for the Special Operations Combat Medic course. That required an additional six months of advanced training in conventional and unconventional medical skills, ranging from diagnosis and treatment of many conditions to advanced emergency medicine and battlefield life support. He was deployed to Iraq with SEAL Team 5 April 14, 2003, to root out and destroy leftover Iraqi resistance and joined in the search for WMDs. Afterward, he carried out operations to eliminate or capture terrorists. He was deployed to Afghanistan in 2005 with SEAL Team 10 as part of SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1. While in Afghanistan, he was involved in Operation Red Wings, during which the four-man special reconnaissance element was noticed by local herdsmen. The team understood that the local herdsmen might reveal their whereabouts to Taliban fighters, but also recognized that the herdsmen were unarmed and did not appear to be combatants. Despite the risk, the SEAL team allowed the herdsmen to leave. Soon thereafter, the SEAL team was ambushed, and only Luttrell survived. He was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions during that operation. During the ambush of Operation Red Wings, the four SEALs were attacked from three sides and took fire from RPK machine guns, AK-47s, RPG-7s, and 82mm mortars. The attack forced the SEALs into the northeast gorge of the Shuryek Valley side of Sotalo the SEALs made a number of attempts to contact the Combat Operations Center, but they couldn't establish any consistent communication other than to say that they were under attack. Three of the four team members were killed, and Luttrell, the only survivor, was left unconscious with a number of fractures, a broken back, and numerous shrapnel wounds. Members of SEAL Team 10 attempted a rescue during the firefight, but their helicopter was shot down, and all aboard were killed. Luttrell regained consciousness and evaded the pursuing enemy with the help of local Pashtun villagers, one of them being Mohammed Gulab, who eventually sent an emissary to the nearest U.S. base to secure Lutrell's safe rescue and ultimately saved his life. He was rescued on July 2nd by Army Rangers and Afghan National Army soldiers in the woods when Gulab and several villagers were trying to get Lutrell to a safe location. After recovering from his injuries, Luttrell returned to full duty and deployed to Ramadi, during Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2006 as part of SEAL Team 5. He later had his knees blown out and fractured his spine again. These injuries ultimately led to his discharge. In 2007, Luttrell was awarded the Navy Cross by President Bush. He returned to the U.S. in 2007 and co-authored the New York Times bestseller, Lone Survivor, the eyewitness account of Operation Red Wing and the lost heroes of SEAL Team 10 a film version starring Mark Wahlberg, was released December 25, 2013. In 2010, Lutrell established the Lone Survivor Foundation. The mission of the foundation, headquartered in Houston, Texas, is to restore, empower, and renew hope for our wounded warriors and their families through health, wellness, and therapeutic support. Thus ends 12 Soul Survivor Stories. Hope you enjoyed them. We always appreciate reviews here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast, and we have a few recent ones to share with you. A few of these mention our other shows as well. The first one, Five Stars. The two Blackbeard episodes were entrancing. 1001 Heroes. Your interview with the author brought my interests to bear. Thank you. Down from Don Thon, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Pure Gold, Just Like That Train, and I remember that episode, by the way. 1,001 heroes. Five stars. One of the best podcasts ever. I love the diversity of this show. One question. Why did you change the cover thing? I like the old one more. But that doesn't change the quality of your show. Absolute perfection. Thank you. Down from Cool Dude, Apple Podcast U.S. In answer to your question about the show logo, Cool Dude... I wanted you to know I've been doing some marketing lately and I wanted the full name of the podcast 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries to stand out, which it really doesn't on the existing logo. So I'm using the older logo for a while while we're doing the marketing. Thanks for your review. And this one, 1001 Stories from the Old West. Five stars. Awesome. I look forward to each Sunday episode. Great podcast. Thank you. That from Guitard, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, big fan of 1001 Stories for the Road, five stars. I'm a big fan of all the 1001 Stories podcasts, especially the long multiple episode books. I especially like the Stories for the Road. Great variety and fun way to listen to and learn about things I wouldn't normally have thought to listen to. Keep up the great work. Down from CAJSA, Apple Podcast, US. And this one, great podcast series 1001 Best of Jack London. And another great podcast for 1001 five stars. Down from IHJAO, Apple Podcast, US. And this one titled Pirates, Five Stars, 1001 Heroes. Such interesting stories and so well told. Down from Crystalline 400, Apple Podcast, US. Thank you so very much for taking the time to send us the reviews. They're greatly appreciated, and I know they help new listeners find their way to us. We'll return next Sunday afternoon, and as you may well have noticed, our release times are getting earlier and earlier. We're now shooting for noon on Sundays to give you a little more of that weekend to have time to listen to our podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll be back soon, I promise.